Welcome to In Layman's Terms, a podcast dedicated to stories of discipleship and putting scripture to use in our daily lives. I'm your host, Todd Seifert. I'm the Communications Director for the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church, comprised of just fewer than 1,000 churches throughout Kansas and Nebraska. I'm also a certified lay minister in the United Methodist Church, so what you hear on this show truly comes to you in layman's terms. I have more than 25 years experience teaching the Bible to everyone from teenagers to 90-somethings, and I served as a journalist for 20 years prior to entering ministry. So I'm excited to share with you stories of disciples in action and to explore with you what the Bible has to teach us in the 21st century. Some episodes focus on a person or church doing great things to serve as the hands and feet of Christ. Some episodes feature interviews with experts who can help us along our faith journey. Still others include short reflections on scripture. Thank you for joining me. Division, acrimony, schism. All three of those words have been used recently by secular media to describe what's going on right now in the United Methodist Church. It's frustrating for some. It's heartbreaking for many. But what really is happening? I thought it would be a good idea to spend some time over the next few weeks discussing what is happening in the denomination. How we got to this point, and where do we go from here? Most people who are part of the United Methodist Church know about the ongoing struggle on the topic of human sexuality, specifically whether to allow same-gender weddings to be conducted on UMC properties and by UMC clergy, as well as whether to allow for ordination of openly LGBTQIA plus individuals. The unrest really began in 1972 at what is known as the General Conference of the Church. That phrase will come up often, so you need to know what it means. It's a gathering, usually every four years, by people elected by their annual conferences to serve as a congress of sorts to determine legislation for additions, subtractions, and amendments to what we call the Book of Discipline, basically our document of church law and polity. In a nutshell, it appeared the denomination was due for a schism at the 2016 General Conference in Portland, Oregon. Some hope was injected by the creation of a committee tasked with trying to find a way forward for the denomination And then we had a special session of General Conference in 2019 in which proposals that would have allowed for what many people call full inclusion were overshadowed in a big way by passage of what became known as the traditional plan. This plan not only maintained the language in the Book of Discipline outlining LGBTQIA plus inclusion in the church in terms of ordination and weddings, but it actually strengthened penalties. The result has been additional unrest outright disobedience to the discipline, and a cloud of uncertainty that has made life difficult for some annual conferences. That's another phrase you'll need to know, annual conferences. They're basically geographic groupings of churches, often along state lines. Think of it as the way that college football and basketball teams used to be grouped before the money got so large and regional rivalries gave way to TV contracts. Now, I want to be absolutely clear on my purpose for these next few episodes. I've been very open that I will remain in the United Methodist Church after whatever happens in the months and years ahead, but this is not a gotcha group of episodes. I intend to speak with people who know the history better than I do. People who know what transpired and have taken time to reason the why behind those actions. 
I plan to talk to bishops who have had an incredibly difficult task in holding people together on two extreme sides of the topic, while also working with a large number of United Methodists who are somewhere in the middle between those extremes. I also have invitations out to people who are leaving the denomination for the Global Methodist Church, a more conservative denomination that officially launched May 1st, 2022. Again, not to berate them or to criticize them in any way, but an effort to help people better understand their stance and why they made what I'm sure had to be a very, very difficult decision to leave. And I thought the best way to get started would be to talk about where we are today, with an overview of sorts. So I'm pleased to tell you that I'm joined in this episode by the Reverend Adam Hamilton. He's the senior pastor of our denomination's largest congregation and the leader of our Great Plains Conference delegation to the General Conference. I have a more extensive introduction once we start the recording of our interview. One note, Adam was working on his latest book when he talked with me via Zoom in July from a cabin in the Ozarks. And as you might imagine, the internet connectivity there can be a little spotty. So there are just a few times in this recording when his voice trails off for just a brief moment. I did my best to edit those out, and he was gracious to re-record a couple of answers to my questions when we lost the signal altogether. As many of you know, Adam is an even-tempered, grace-filled, thinking person's pastor, and he has such great insights that I wanted to be sure and start off with this interview. So without any further delay, here's my interview with Reverend Adam Hamilton. And I'm joined now by the Reverend Adam Hamilton, lead pastor of United Methodist Church of the Resurrection, based in Leewood, Kansas, but with five campuses. You undoubtedly have heard of Adam. You've probably read a lot of his books. He does a lot of writing, uh, about a book a year, right? Uh, is kind of the way it's been at least the last few years. That's right. One or two a year, usually around Lent and Advent, but sometimes something else. Yep. All right. So uh, Adam's been on the on the show before. We appreciate him. We celebrated the anniversary of Church of the Resurrection's uh, founding, and that was a it's still the second most listened to podcast episode for this for this podcast. Wow, that's great. So yeah, uh, people word got around the congregation there. I think everybody gave a listen. They wanted to hear what you had to say. So <laughs> we appreciate that. But I want you to know how much I appreciate you, your leadership for the annual conference and what you do. It really matters. And, you know, you're one of those guys who uh, you don't seek any credit. You're not trying to have people notice you. And yet what you do has an impact on all of our churches. And I just really appreciate you. I appreciate your heart. I appreciate your love for Jesus and your love for people and your love for the United Methodist Church. Thank you, Adam, for those kind words. I want you to know that we give thanks for you and for your ministry, both at the Church of the Resurrection and across our denomination. We are in a, a in quite a season here, aren't we, Adam? <laughs> the United yeah, Methodist we Church, we're, we're, in a, we're in a series of it's kind of a state of limbo, and we have been since 2020. The pandemic absolutely crushed uh, opportunities for us to get together for general conference and to, to at least move forward on a topic that has been so divisive. Um, I want to just get with you to start here and tell me a little bit about where you see things are right now. Uh, for people who haven't maybe caught up with things or are really not sure what's going on, uh, would you help us kind of understand where we stand right now as the United Methodist sure. Church? Sure. Well, first of all, uh, you know, the word united in Methodist uh, in our denomination has always been a bit of a misnomer. We are, uh, we of course drew that from the Evangelical United Brethren Church uh, that joined with the Methodist Church to form the United Methodist Church in 1968. But we've always struggled a bit with our unity uh, with that portion of that. And we've struggled with it. We've, we've had this, you know, the United Methodist Church has, and really the Methodist Church from its inception. So this is more than you wanted to ask or more than you were asking, but 
you know, we've always been a church that's made up of people who are uh, right of center, left of center, center, where this church of the via media or the middle way, uh, that was really where Wesley and the Methodists were in the, in the 18th century. And so we, you know, we find ourselves and have always found ourselves with people who are, you know, far more progressive and people who are far more conservative and everything in between. And that's part of our strength. That's why I joined the United Methodist Church is this capacity to hold together intention, you know, these two sides of the gospel. And uh, I so deeply value, you know, my friends who are more progressive and who are, um, you know, who bring a passion for social justice, who bring a, you know, the ability to ask critical questions of, of scripture, you know, who are willing to push the envelope in places. And I deeply value the people who are more conservative in our denomination and, you know, those who are much more conservative, who are really, you know, want to focus our attention on a relationship with Jesus, on our personal faith, on evangelism, on, uh, on knowing and loving scripture and, um, and taking it seriously. And, and together, they form a powerful whole uh, that is what United Methodism is. And so, so there's always been the struggle between those who are further to the left and those who are further to the right. And then in the 19th century, you know, that showed up in... Uh, some folks who went to Chautauquas and, uh, and they had these big gatherings with intellectuals coming to give lectures on faith and theology and scripture and, you know, classical music and all of these things. And then you had camp meetings, you know, where people went out and they pulled up their wagons and they, you know, circled around. They had fiery evangelical preaching and great gospel music. And, and so, you know, that tension has always been around. And, you know, where we are today is that tension has come to a head when it comes to particularly how we read scripture as it relates to LGBTQ plus persons. And, um, and for some that is, uh, and they would say there's a lot of other things. Of course, there's always, you know, as I look back over my 40 plus years of being United Methodist, 40 years of being United Methodist, there, uh, there have been people who have been critical of the bishops, critical of the, of the general boards and agencies, critical of uh, a host of things of our seminaries in the United Methodist Church. And so for some of those folks, this is just like the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, but for, by and large, the critical issue that's led to this point of separation is how do we read scripture when it comes to LGBTQ plus persons? And, and here we've got folks who are on the left who say, look, the, you know, the, the clear dominant strands of scripture are about love your neighbor, they're about love the other, they're about justice, they're about fairness, they're about equity, they're about all of these things. And clearly there are gay and lesbian people and God loves them. And those, you know, when, when LGBTQ plus persons want to follow Jesus, they're welcome in the church and, and, uh, and they should be able to marry. And, uh, and yes, there are these handful of scriptures that would speak against that, but, but those are read like the 200 plus verses in the Bible that allow for slavery or verses that allow for parents to, in fact, encourage parents to, uh, to make a rod, which is a bundle of sticks, and to not spare the rod when it comes to disciplining your children, and, uh, and women being silent in the church and a whole host of other things. So the folks on the left have read those scriptures in this way and said, look, this is about people, and these are real people, and they, they love Jesus, and they, you know, they want to love, you know, to love and be loved in a relationship, and yes, of course, we're going to read those, uh, those handful of scriptures uh, in the light of the historical context, culture, uh, how people understood, uh, how the Judeo- and then Christian traditions understood uh, same gender relationships in the past um, and, and say that really reflected the cultural context of those scriptures. There are others who say, look, this is the word of God. These are, these are scriptures in the Bible. We don't believe they're like the slavery passages. We don't believe they're like women keeping on in the church passages. These are passages that reflect God's timeless and eternal will for what relationships should look like. 
and therefore we're going to welcome people and love them, but we cannot, uh, we cannot marry them. Uh, we cannot affirm same-sex marriage or same-sex relationships. And so, you know, that's the, that's in a nutshell, you know, the two different places people find themselves. And then there's a whole bunch of folks who are somewhere in, in the middle. In the United Methodist Church, there's a lot of folks who go, you know what, I, I don't really know what I think about that, but I, I trust in God's unfailing love. And, you know, there we go. And so there are a lot of people that haven't thought about that. Well, yeah, a lot of people it, it just hasn't been a thing. Um, it's, for them. That's right. In a lot of in a lot of places, this is not an issue. However, it's you know across America, you know most of our churches are in rural areas. Uh, we've got a lot of churches in the cities also, but um, but even in those rural areas or areas that where it seems like this wouldn't be an issue, somebody's got a grandchild who's gay, or somebody has a brother or a sister, or there's a neighbor who who moved into town, and. Um, you know, I remember going to eat lunch with a group at one of the senior adult living centers in Kansas City. And while we were having lunch there, there was a whole group of our members who came and we sat down together. And, and then they started telling me about this uh, lesbian couple who just moved in and, you know, how they loved them. And they were just so grateful for them. And they, you know, they were coming to church with them at our, you know, our on, on-site church services. And I mean, it's increasingly difficult to find people who have no knowledge of anybody who is gay or lesbian. And once you know somebody and they're your kids or your grandkids or your nieces or nephews or someone else, your views tend to change a little bit on this. They tend to, they tend to go, wait a minute, this is just a person and they just want to love. And, and not everybody feels that way when they know somebody who's gay or lesbian, but there's a lot of, a lot of methods to do. So, so anyway, that is where, that's the, you know, that's where we're at today in terms of the division. And there's other things we could point to, but that's, that's one of the critical ones. That's the biggest one. And, uh, and there are, people who are more progressive on this who've said we're we're not gonna we're not gonna treat gay and lesbian people like we've been treating them before stay in the closet don't ask don't tell if they want to get married we want to be able to marry them and again there's other folks say if you're doing that you're violating the book of discipline and either we're gone or you're gone we can't stay in a denomination like that. so that's where we find ourselves in conflict yeah it's 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 such a a, a tough situation because you have people with really deep-seated beliefs on each end uh, and like you said, I think there's a whole lot of people in the middle. I, I, I've shared before my my change. Uh, I was a newspaper editor in St. George, Utah. I hired a young man to be a copy editor. Actually, he was an intern, did such a good job. We hired him on full time. And then he was such a good writer. We made him a columnist. He wrote this amazing column. Uh, he was an openly gay man. And I just I saw how the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon church, uh, where we were, that was 85% of the population uh, how he was ostracized and, and really made less than yep. anyone else be, once they found out. He was fine until they found out. Right. Um, and, and that made me reflect, okay, so what does my church say? Um, and, and keep in mind, I, I was nobody. I was, I, was a, I, was a, I was helping with audiovisual stuff at a, a church start in St. George, Utah. Uh, but it made me think, wow, mm-hmm. you know, maybe, maybe I need to reassess what I'm thinking about these kinds of things. So uh, that, for me, that was, that was a, a turning point. Uh, in my belief. So I, I, I totally buy into how when, once you know someone, it, it may make may make a may make a change for you. Uh, I'm uh, really curious, a, Adam. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. sorry. Uh, well, I was just going to say, there's a lot of hurt that has been inflicted on gay and lesbian people over and transgender people over the history of the Christian faith. I mean, there's, you know, there's, and I can only look back to my lifespan, but I came to faith in a little Pentecostal church and we had a man who lived across the street and uh, I think he'd been an organist in a church. He was, uh, he seemed much older to me, uh, probably, he probably was my age as I think about it, but I was 14 then. And uh, he was gay. He was uh, 
very nice guy who would stand out in his yard and say hi, you know, wave at the people coming to church on Sunday morning, but wouldn't dare step into our church. And I remember as kids in youth group, you know, he would wave to us and we'd go into the church. And as we were walking in, we'd be teasing and making fun of him and saying, you know, we called him Merle the Squirrel. And, uh, and we laughed because he played an organ, you know, and, and uh, we made jokes about that. And, you know, I look back later on, I thought here, we thought we were these born again, you know, Jesus loving people who were filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and all of that, and read our Bibles, you know, fastidiously. And somehow we missed the fact that, you know, this is not how Christians talk about their neighbor. And, uh, and, you know, from the time we started the church, we had people who were gay and lesbian who would start coming, we were a church for non-religious and nominally religious people. And so we, we had people who would start coming, younger people, and, you know, they would ask me, Pastor, I might just need you to know this about me, and would I be welcome in this congregation? And the answer was always, yes, absolutely, you are welcome here, we want you to be here. But there was still in my mind this, but I can't affirm your, you know, you need to be celibate is what I would say in those things. So, you know, once, once, I got to know two or 300 gay and lesbian people in our congregation. These are children of our members. These are people who started coming to our church. It was harder for me to, to um, look at those five or six verses in the Bible, those six verses in the Bible that speak directly to some form of same gender relationship and think that those are talking about these people. So, you know, for me, it was, again, like you, it was getting to know people, hearing their stories and feeling um, these are just ordinary people who, you know, and I will tell you that, this last Sunday, so I, this happens so often. This last Sunday, there was um, two women and their son who came to church, and uh, they live overseas. They live in Europe. They're with the United States Navy, if I remember correctly. And they uh, they were so excited. They were on leave and they were uh, passing through Kansas City, but they intentionally came through because church from uh, from Europe a year and a half ago during COVID in our one of our online uh, coffee with the pastors. And they just said, we want you to know how much we love you and how much we love this church and how, how grateful we are that you have welcomed us with open arms, our family. They've been together 14 years. They have a 13-year-old uh, son. And, uh, and they said, you know, this is our church. And, you know, we had a church. Uh, we started going to church on our, you know, near our base. And, uh, and it became clear very quickly that they wouldn't welcome us as a married couple. They, they saw that as sin. They didn't recognize the love that we shared for each other. And we felt like we had no place. We were, you know, and then somebody told us about resurrection and we started worshiping online. And, and, and after service, again, there's just like effusive. It's like, you don't know how much it means that you welcome and love us and that, and that we are a part of this congregation. And so anyway, that's, that's, that's a weekly or almost weekly occurrence I have at resurrection or people in the community who come up and say, thank you for being a church for my kids or for standing up for my brother or, you know, whatever it might be. First, the resurrection, uh, largest church in our denomination. It is a microcosm of society, given the size of it uh, and where it is. I mean, you're in the Kansas City area. You're right on the state line. So you got people from all kinds of different economic, socioeconomic backgrounds, different races, uh, just different backgrounds and experiences in general. What is it like to try to keep everything together? Because uh, you've okay. got to have people who are on both sides of this of this very serious issue uh, and are probably very passionate about it. And yet there seems to be a pretty good bit of harmony there. So what, what, wow. do you, what do you do about that? And how do you try to lead people through that so that they can be maybe opposed on one single thing, but can still work together for the purposes of making disciples of Jesus Christ? Yeah, that's a great question, Todd. So uh, again, as a microcosm of our denomination, really of our country, um, 
we are, we're a church that's 49% Republican. Uh, I think it's 43% Democrat and 8% independent. On any given issue, we are divided. Um, we are divided on so many things. And yet what we remember is the most important thing is we wanna love Jesus and we wanna love people. And, uh, and so part of what I have to do is continually remind myself and everyone else, uh, we're followers of Jesus. And you know, one of the things I love, uh, and I got this, I think from John Ortberg, um, we talked about the disciples and how among the disciples, you had a uh, zealot, you had Simon the zealot, and you had Matthew the tax collector. And Matthew was a tax collector, he was working for the Romans and so that was, you know, he was, he, his career was serving them by collecting taxes from people and the zealots couldn't stand the tax collectors and they couldn't stand the Romans. And they were willing to, they were willing to slit people's throats to get them to, to as literally as terrorists to force them to leave the Holy Land. And so you had people who were on political, you know, on the extreme opposites of the political continuum. And yet Jesus called them both to follow him. And he doesn't seem to have spent time trying to correct their faulty theology. He just said, come and follow me and I'll make you fish for people. And I just think about the conversations they must've had as they were sitting around the campfire with Jesus, you know, or the conversation they had when Jesus wasn't around. And, and so that's, you know, that's where the church is. And so I, you know, part of it is to remind people, this is who we are. We are followers of Jesus. We are striving to remember the, you know, what we often say, you know, to keep the main thing, the main thing. And and part of what we need is humility and understanding where different people are and trying to listen and hear you know, their experience, their stories, uh, how they come at it, where they come at it. If you're somebody who says there's no way it's possible that I'm wrong on this and that this is the only way to read the Bible. And I believe that this is a serious enough sin that that, uh, you know, that God commanded people to put gay men to death, to stone them to death in the in the Torah. You might have a hard time staying in a church. But if you're willing to say, you know what, this is what I believe, and I think this is right, that this is God's timeless and eternal will, but I understand how you got where you are and why you read it that way. And I really value the fact that you love and have compassion and want justice, even if I think you're wrong about this. And if you're somebody who's on the, on the more progressive side and you say, you know what, I think you're wrong in your view of this, but I know you don't want to hurt people and you love people. And I know that you love Jesus and, you know, your, your position on this comes out of your desire to be faithful. And I can appreciate that as, you know, if we can stand in that place, we can stay in the same church. And what we found, we did a poll. So our people have shifted over about a 15 year period of time, 20 year period of time, just like I have, just like society has in some ways. And that, that partly became, you know, was a result of our thinking through the Bible and how do we read the Bible and where are there other places where we find ourselves saying, yeah, that, that has to reflect the culture and time, not God's timeless will. So as our people have kind of done that and worked through scripture, uh, their views have changed. And uh, as they've gotten to know people, their views have changed. And so I would say about 20 years ago, 20% of our people were in favor of full inclusion of gay and lesbian people in terms of marriage and ordination on that. And today it's, you know, 75% are. And so there's been a shift in our, in our congregation. We took a poll uh, two years ago and 75, roughly 75% of our people were in favor of full inclusion. And roughly 25% of our people were, you know what, I, I'm just not sure that's God's will for, for people. And so we have this difference, but it was interesting. Only 3% of our congregation said, I can't be in a church with people who think differently than I do. Uh, well, 3% on either end. So 3% of our progress, progressive said, I don't think I can continue in a denomination that's going to exclude anybody from a marriage uh, and the sacrament of marriage. And 3% said, I can't be in a denomination where they're going to allow gay marriages. So I'm, I'm assuming that those 6% may leave our church at some point. But 94% of our people said, 
we may disagree, but I'm still going to love these people. And this is my church. And this is not, uh, this would not lead me to leave our, our congregation, our community. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where a lot of churches probably are. The, the balance between the 25 and 75 may be different, but the fact is most of our people say, look, I understand how people get there, you know, how they arrive at their conclusions. And I want to make sure the main thing is that we're following Jesus, loving God, loving our neighbor. And there's room for us to interpret scripture differently. And I think that's, I think that's where the bulk of our denomination is as well. Yeah. I think it's important for people to understand that we've never all agreed on everything ever. Right. <laughs> you, right. I mean, you, you mentioned, I, I, I had a pastor one time that gave a great sermon where he was, he was just trying to like paint a picture and the idea of exactly what you're talking about, Simon or, or Matthew and Simon Zeller in the back. And, and they're, they're having this argument and Jesus like, wait, 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 come up here. Let's have a talk. <laughs> and then he calls them and they, they walk the rest of the way together and he's helping mediate and, and, and discuss this and show what the mission was about going up, coming up. Um, yeah. And I imagine that's really what a lot of pastors are probably going to have to do over the next year to two years is, uh, and maybe longer, but especially in this time when maybe some decisions are going to be made um, of let, let's 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 have the discussion and, and let's let's not lose sight of what the mission is ahead of us. Right. Uh, I think that's so important for people to keep in mind because we've never we've never agreed on everything ever. Let's pause here for just a moment for a brief message. We'll return with the remainder of my interview with Reverend Adam Hamilton in just a moment. Matthew 28 tells us to make disciples of Jesus Christ, but how can you do that? You can help by providing some inspiration each morning to someone else. Just go to www.greatplainsumc.org slash daily devotions. Once there, you'll find a QR code and a link to a sign-up page. Pick your day and your topic. If you need some assistance, there's even a link to the Vanderbilt University Daily Lectionary. Follow the instructions for submitting your devotion and you've done your part to help inspire and encourage others in their Christian walk. Again, that's www.greatplainsumc.org slash daily devotions. Help make more disciples today. back to in layman's terms. We're spending some time the next few weeks exploring the future of the United Methodist Church amid the turmoil over human sexuality concerns. In this episode, we're exploring where things stand now with Reverend Adam Hamilton, lead pastor of Church of the Resurrection, our denomination's largest congregation. Before the break, we were talking about how there have been people on different sides of issues who follow Jesus faithfully, dating all the way back to Christ's selection of his own disciples. We pick up our conversation with an example of another hot-button concern in society today. Again, here's Adam Hamilton. I think about Roe v. Wade and it's being overturned. And this has been, you know, this before same-sex marriage was the most critical divisive issue in the church, it was abortion, starting, uh, starting when Roe v. Wade passed in 1972. And Methodists have always, we have people on both sides of this there. And part, we have an event coming up in the church where we're going to be 
trying to help people find some middle ground. We're going to recognize, okay, these are the things that drive the pro-life side, and these are the things that drive the pro-choice side at their best. If you're interested, Church of the Resurrection recorded that event, and you can watch it on the church's YouTube page at youtube.com slash C slash Church of the Resurrection. The link will also be in the show notes. So, you know, people who call themselves Christians who stand on either one of those sides, this is why they stand where they stand. And the truth is that there's a whole host of places where they actually agree with each other. It's just that we don't usually think about that. We typically focus on where they disagree. And so we're going to try to find some, you know, some middle ground and some place to be able to say, okay, I value why you're taking the position you are, even though I disagree with you, but I can agree with you here, here, and here. And I think that's, we, if the church can't model that for the world, the world is, has no hope because a, a, absent the call to love our neighbor and to love even our enemy, if you take that away, you take Jesus' words away and Jesus and the spirit of God working in us, we're a hopeless cause as a, as a people. We're going to, you know, we're going to bite and backbite. And it's then a fair question to ask, what's the church doing here then? Right. If exactly. we're not serving in that role. Exactly. Exactly. So blessed are the peacemakers. And, and, uh, and I think that, you know, some of the things we can all agree upon is we're called to love everybody. And there are people who've been hurt by the church uh, who are gay and lesbian. And, uh, and we don't want to be that kind of church. I think we, we can surely all agree on that. And we can agree on listening to people's stories and walking with people. And we can agree that, you know, the, the issues we have with sexuality are temporal. They're not going to be in heaven. Uh, you know, Jesus said in heaven, there's neither marriage nor giving in marriage. And so somehow our love will transcend that when we get to heaven. So these are all temporal issues. And we believe in a God of grace and mercy. And, um, and I think people have known how to do this for a long time. So I, I think we're working towards finding solutions. And for some that that will mean joining a new denomination that will be crystal clear. It's going to hold Wesleyan theology. And it's going to be crystal clear, we will not accept same-sex marriages, and we will not accept, you know, we, we believe this is a sin, and uh, we'll welcome people, but they'll need to know that that's a sin, just like any other sin, and and there'll be another denomination, the United Methodist Church will continue, so that's the uh, a global Methodist Church, and there's other things that they would lift up, but that's that's really the key dividing issue for us, and uh, and in part, they would say, and how we read scripture, and that, that may be so as well. And yeah, the, so the Global Methodist Church started on May 1st. That was its official launch date. Yep. Um, and, and we have other episodes coming up where we'll talk a little bit more about what's going to matter of fact, we'll talk to a few folks who are going to be leading for the for the GMC just so we get an idea of where they're coming from. Um, Adam, I kind of want to shift the discussion here just a little bit to the future. Um, you know, we, we've got this, we have churches disaffiliating. We had 12, 12 or 13 disaffiliated at the annual conference in June here in the Great Plains. Yeah. And we're one of the smaller numbers uh, as far as disaffiliations go. Uh, yep. We will have some more in September. The bishop just uh, literally just, we sent a letter out this morning as we're recording this, the, the bishop's calling a special session of the annual conference for September 10th, uh, where we'll deal with uh, even more disaffiliations of churches that just for whatever reason, they just don't feel they can stay part of the United Methodist Church. What does the future look like in your opinion? You know, when we get to the other side of this, um, yep. Have, do you have a vision for what that might look like, both for Church of the Resurrection and as a denomination? Yep. First, I want to ask you, how many churches are disaffiliating in this uh, in this next round? Uh, I don't know the official number yet. I think the estimate is somewhere around 40. And I was wrong. As of this recording, it appears as though we will have between 50 and 60 churches disaffiliating at the September 10th special session of the Great Plains Annual Conference. So the totals that I mentioned here need to be adjusted slightly. 
uh, just to give perspective, so prior to this, the Great Plains Annual Conference uh, was about 970 churches. So right. that would put us at about 56 to 60 churches at this point. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, I think the estimate right now, which could change, is that about 10% uh, of our churches will leave in the Great Plains Conference. Um, so, you know, r- roughly 90 to 100 churches will ultimately, ultimately leave. And uh, of those, a number of them are going independent. They're going to be community churches. They're not joining a particular denomination. They're just going to be on their own. And I think somewhere around half or less will end up joining the GMC, the Global Methodist Church. And I mentioned that because I think that's, it's helpful to know that 90% of our churches are staying and, um, and that not all of those who are leaving are joining the GMC. And I wish the GMC well. I have a lot of friends who are there. Um, so what I, I met with the uh, heads of the delegations from the, the annual conferences in our jurisdiction um, the other day. Jurisdiction is another term you'll need to know. There are five of them in the United States, and while they serve several functions, their primary role is the election of new bishops. The Great Plains Conference is in the South Central jurisdiction, which includes annual conferences from Nebraska and Kansas, together the Great Plains, Missouri, Arkansas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Louisiana, and five from Texas. North Texas, the Dallas area, Central Texas, from the neighboring Fort Worth area, Northwest Texas, Rio, Texas, which is a huge swath from El Paso all the way down to San Antonio, and finally the Texas Conference or the Houston area. And in some annual conferences, like the uh, Northwest Texas Conference, you know they have a large number of their churches that will leave. Now, Northwest Texas is a small conference. They're about the size of Church of the Resurrection in terms of their total membership. And, um, and so they have a number of those churches that will leave, but some of them are staying and some of them are rethinking leaving. And so I had a gathering with some of them just the other day. Um, that's, that's way out of the norm. So that's a very unusual set of circumstances. Um, in the Texas Annual Conference, uh, where Bishop Jones is now, um, they're anticipating it could be as high as 30%. Um, they, you know, at one point they thought the annual conference might actually vote to leave. But I think there's a number of them who, who feel like that, you know, as they're voting church by church, there's a number of those churches that really don't want to leave. So we'll see. But most of the other annual conferences, uh, Oklahoma also had a significant number who were, who were looking at leaving. They thought about 30%. But most of the other annual conferences, it was 10%, uh, less than 10% in some, maybe as high as 15% in others. I think across the denomination, we're looking at somewhere between 10 and 15%, let's just say as high as 15% who are going to leave. And, and some in the GMC have said, well, no, it's going to be a massive you know, number of people leaving, 35 40%. I just don't see it. I don't hear it. Um, in talking with people across the denomination. I think uh, there are some annual conferences where there'll be up more, uh, particularly in the South. But um, I just, I think it's, let's say 15%. So there's 30,000 churches, give or take, is something like 32,000 in the United States, Methodist churches. And of those 32,000, I think uh, we're going to see that 27 to 28,000 will remain United Methodist. And others will divide some going independent, some joining the free Methodist or other Methodist, and some joining the GMC. So I think that's what we're going to be in terms of numbers. And uh, where I see us as a church, I'm actually pretty excited about the future of the United Methodist Church. Now, churches as a whole across America are declining. It doesn't matter what denomination. Southern Baptists are declining faster than the United Methodists. There's, uh, there are a handful, you know, there are churches that are growing, and they're typically larger churches in cities. Uh, but, and there are rural churches where they're doing great work and they're growing. But 
largely churches are in decline and we'll see an increase in, in that decline as we look at future generations, unless we figure out how to connect with them and draw them to Christ. But, um, but for the United Methodist Church, there's a couple of things I think. First of all, the church's position going forward. So after 2024, I believe, or a special college conference in 2025 or 2026, is that we will remove the language from the book of discipline about homosexuality that was inserted in 1972. So it's not been in our discipline for most of our history. Uh, we did just fine as United Methodists without having to say that the practice of homosexuality was incompatible with Christian teaching. We're gonna take that language out. We're gonna recognize that we disagree on this, that we are there are people in, in different places on this and we're not going to have a majority, a simple majority say what everybody else is gonna to have to think about this issue. So uh, what's going to happen is sometime after 2024, so 2024 or maybe a special called general conference, uh, the language in the book of discipline related to same-sex marriage, uh, and particularly the line that the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching will be removed from our discipline. And, and with that, any other language that tied into that, which, uh, which forbade pastors from officiating at same-sex marriages and forbade ordination. And uh, for people who are otherwise qualified, meeting all the same criteria for holy living and, you know, theology and spirituality um, and, and gifts for ministry, um, but who are in same-sex marriages, they will be able to be ordained. And so here, here's what's going to take place, I think, is um, in the vast, you know, in, if you are a pastor who does not believe in same-sex marriage, you're not going to do same-sex marriages. If you're a pastor who does believe in them, you're going to be able to do them. Uh, you know, pastors will all, we already get to choose who we marry. We're going to continue to be able to do that at that time. And, um, and I think it's going to line up pretty much with where our churches are. You know, we're going to have X number of churches who say yes, and X number of churches say, yeah, we're, no, we're not sure about that. And what's interesting is the church is not going to rise or fall based on that. I don't believe for most of our history, we didn't have a statement in the book of discipline that said the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. That was added in 1972. Some of the other things were added since then. We're going to lift those things out and just say, do ministry. You know, pastors decide who they're going to marry. Uh, boards of ordinary ministry decide who they're going to ordain. And, uh, and I think what's going to happen is people are going to look around and go, wow, there really wasn't any, any significant change. There'll be significant changes for people who are gay and lesbian feeling welcomed and affirmed in churches that are fully welcoming and affirming. And they won't feel like our denomination is saying hurtful things about them anymore. But for most people, I don't think they're going to notice any difference. What I'm looking forward to is going to general conference and talking about what matters in terms of our mission and ministry in the church and not fighting every time. I'm looking forward to not thinking that every single vote at general conference is a proxy vote about same-sex marriage, because that's how almost everything is seen at general conference. Well, okay, why are they really trying to do this? What are they really trying to get after here? And instead for us to say, look, we're people who are passionate about making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world, and we're going to keep doing that. And I do think our theology which embraces the intellect. We're a, a church for thinking people. We're a church that, that holds together the evangelical and social gospel. We hold together the intellect and the heart, uh, faith and works. You know, we're liberal and conservative. We're both of those things at the same time. That church has the greatest chance to reach non-religious and nominally religious people in the 21st century. And, and to the degree that we can focus on that and being passionate followers of Jesus, I think we've got a great future, a bright future. And isn't that what we're supposed to be doing anyway? Exactly. Exactly. A lot of times when, when there's conflict, people start um, throwing up things that are aimed at making people afraid of the other side. And the left can do this and the right can do this. And, but I want to mention just to, just to reaffirm something that uh, people need to hear and know if they're Methodist. 
is I've heard people say, uh, well, the United Methodist Church is going to reject all of our historic Christian essentials of the faith. I had uh, one woman say, you know, why, why is the United Methodist Church rejecting the virgin birth? I'm like, where did you get that? Nobody wants to do that. I've not heard anybody say that. Uh, are there people who have questions? Of course, there always have been from the big Joseph, the, the husband of Mary had questions to begin with, but we're not rejecting that. I had somebody say, well, I heard the Methodist church is going to reject the, you know, the resurrection or the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm like, well, the day that they do that, I'm leaving. I will be, I'll be one of the first ones out and leading resurrection to leave this denomination. It's just that nobody I know wants to do that. No one is talking about leaving behind our, our historic essentials, the Christian faith. And we are a church who is passionate about reading scripture and encouraging people to read the Bible and, and allowing it to form our lives. And, and uh, I just, I think it's unfortunate sometimes when people get afraid or when people stir up fears of people, I've heard people say this, you know, that, uh, that this is, you know, people who are on the other side saying, this is what the Methodist church is going to be. It simply is not true. And, uh, and the United Methodist church will continue to hold those historic essentials, the faith and I will continue to be proud to be a United Methodist. I think we have a great approach to the gospel. We'll leave the discussion right there. Adam, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us about, uh, about this topic and some others. We appreciate you, and, and thanks again for your ministry and leadership. Again, that was my discussion with Reverend Adam Hamilton from United Methodist Church of the Resurrection the largest church in our denomination. He's also the leader of the Great Plains Conference's delegation to the General Conference. This episode focused on where we are now with a slight peek ahead. Next time, we'll look back and we'll examine how we got to this point. We'll find out what we can learn from our history. I hope you found this episode informative enough to share this podcast with others. And I hope that you'll join me next time. In Layman's Terms is a podcast sponsored by the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church and by me, your host, Todd Seifert. If you like what you've heard in this episode, please go rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. It helps others find us. And if you're so inclined, please share the link to this podcast on your social media channels. Our music and sound effects come via subscriptions to Universal Production Music and to Storyblocks. You can find archived episodes on the conference website at www.greatplainsumc.org podcasts or on my website, toddseifert.com. Please email me with any questions or comments to tseifert at greatplainsumc.org and I'll do my best to respond as quickly as possible. Thank you for listening. And until next time, please do what you can to help make more disciples of Jesus Christ. You can play a small part in helping change a life.